if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And as you do, I'd like for you to consider where we're at in this journey through this wonderful book of Acts. Kind of consider where we're at in this chronological timeline of the birth of the church. As the resurrected Jesus has already told the the apostles, the 12 apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're going to do that how? After he has given them the power of the Holy Spirit. So they're going to go under his authority, going to go under the power of the Holy Spirit that they have been given, and you will be my witnesses in these locations. Now Jesus has also been lifted up to the right hand of the Father. He is now interceding before the Father as our great high priest, which he continues to do today. This promised Holy Spirit has come. The apostles have been doing exactly what Jesus has told them to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. They are being witnesses in Jerusalem. They are faithfully proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem. And what's the result? The church has been established in Jerusalem. It's been planted, it's been born, and it's rapidly growing as a result. Starting with about 120 who were gathered prior to Pentecost, waiting on the promised helper, waiting on the promised Holy Spirit to to come. And then the church goes from about 120 prior to Pentecost to at the end of Pentecost to about 3,120 in one day. And then we're told that adding to that number day by day, those who are being saved ever since, as the gospel has been faithfully preached. Chapter 4, telling us then that the number had grown to at least 5,000, most likely even more based upon the evidence that we have there in the text. And then chapter 5, telling us in verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women coming to faith in Christ. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what, they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
So again, we're told that the church is growing. And the church is growing at a very rapid rate. And what's been amazing to this point is that even with this massive amount of growth that they have experienced and are continuing to experience, we've been told in both Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 that there was great unity and care for one another. And I think we would all agree that it's impossible to know everyone in a group that size, right? I mean, we're, again, we're, we're talking about over 5,000 people and growing. Impossible to know every single person by name and know their stories and what their struggles are and all of that. But yet the church generously and sacrificially does what needs to be done to meet one another's needs. Whether they knew the person or not, they knew that there was a need of a brother or a sister in Christ. They did what they needed to do to be able to meet that need. As we're told, that they have everything in common. Meaning they had the mindset or the, the heart set or both the mindset and the heart set of what's mine is yours. Even within this very, very large church. But with any kind of organizational growth, whether the church or another organization, if it's growing and it's growing at a rapid rate, what's going to come or has the potential to come? Challenges, right? Difficulties, things that come along that, that could even unintentionally like cause division among us or among them, thus doing what in, in the process? Harming the unity of the church. And that's what we have here, or the potential to happen here. A, a complaint has come up among the Hellenists against the, the Hebrews. The Hellenists being Greek-speaking Jews who, who did not grow up in Jerusalem or the surrounding area of Palestine. Now, they're ethnic Jews, but they've moved to Jerusalem from other countries, other regions, and moved here. So they, they had their own traditions. They, they, they're Greek-speaking, not, not native Hebrew-speaking like the Hebrews. They weren't speaking Aramaic. They weren't speaking Hebrew. And so you had the Hellenists, again, being the Greek-speaking Jews, each possessing a, a shared faith with the, the Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking Jews, even more of a shared faith now that they are united together in Christ. But again, each having their own different cultural backgrounds. Like what We all in this room uh, have come into this region. Some of you grew up in this area. How many of you grew up within a, maybe a 25-mile radius of this area? A few of you. How many of you grew up outside of a 25-mile radius of this area? The vast majority of us have grown up outside of this area. And it, depending on where we've come from, we're coming with different traditions and different backgrounds and different understandings. But we're, we're all Americans for the most part. And we're all Christians for the most part. Not, not exclusively. And I don't want to assume that's the case of everybody in the room. But we're coming together with different backgrounds and understandings, but also commonalities. So we, they're gathering together as one in the temple. Remember Solomon's portico, as we talked about last week? The, the whole church gathering together to hear the preaching of the word and to be together. But then when it came time to divide into the homes, 
they went and divided into the homes, they likely did so based upon cultural background. They likely did so based upon language, as it would be easier to be in the homes with one another who shared those same cultural backgrounds. And somewhere in all of this, the church, and somehow in all of this, the church continued to grow, and the Hellenists then began, as this happened, to feel neglected, felt as though their needs were not being met in the process. Why? Because their widows were were being neglected in the daily distribution. So maybe maybe they were being left out of the daily distribution altogether. Even if it's unintentionally, maybe they were being left out. Or maybe they weren't getting an equal portion in the daily distribution. Or maybe that's just how they felt. Like, they're getting more than I'm getting. Why? Ultimately, we don't know exactly, like, how they were being neglected. But either way, they felt neglected. And if, if you or someone else feels neglected, if you feel marginalized, if you feel unheard for any reason, what happens? A feeling develops, doesn't it? Hey, what about me? Like, what? Why? Why? What? What? What about me? And then seeds of unrest begin to form. Seeds of disunity begin to, to are planted. Again, even if it's unintentional, that's what begins to happen. It's like everyone in the family comes to the dinner table happy, right? been a great day everyone's happy you come to the dinner table and then you look over at the other person's plate your siblings plate whoever and you're like hey they got more than I did that piece of cake is bigger than my piece of cake and what happens disunity unrest begins to happen even in the most docile of situations This being a very simple illustration, one that we can all relate to, especially when from children at the table growing up. But we also know what this illustration highlights can extend much further than the dinner table. We see it in our culture every single day, don't we? Feelings of neglect and marginalization leading to disunity. And sadly, we see it in our churches as well. Churches quarreling and even splitting when disunity is given room to fester, when it's given room to take root, which not only harms the unity of the church itself, but does what? It also harms the gospel witness of the church within the community. So the question I want us to consider this morning, or the questions that I want us to consider this morning are, are one, how did the apostles respond to this complaint? How did they deal with it? And two, what can we learn from the apostles' response? And to get our answers, we're going to consider some just general observations from the text. So I wouldn't exactly call these points, I may say point along the way, but they're just kind of observations that we glean from the text. Starting with number one, the apostles took the complaint seriously. Notice how they didn't attempt to justify the apparent neglect. Maybe it's because they immediately recognized the validity of the complaint and were like, Oh, my bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. See it. Growing church. Things like this are going to naturally happen. Something unintentionally 
He gets overlooked. But whether that was the case or, or not, they didn't look to make any excuses. They're not sitting there trying to justify themselves. Hey, you know what? We got all this going on over here. We got this going on over there. No, they just, they heard the complaint. They believed it clearly had enough validity to, to warrant action, and they took action. The immediacy of their response being important. Why? Why is such a, an immediate response important? To, to not let feelings of neglect have time to fester. To not let disunity have time to take root. Because the longer complaints and feelings of neglect and have time to, to fester, what happens? You have a greater chance of disunity breaking out within the church. Disunity that not only affects the church, but again, the witness of the church. Church begins to experience conflict. Conflict then begins to escalate, it begins to go, grow, go, goes from being contained within the walls of the church to now it's outside of the church. It's in the community. It's gone from just a small little brush fire to now it's a wildfire that everybody's talking about. Because then people inside and outside of the church are talking about what? The disunity of that church. Hey, you know what's going on at that church downtown? Have you heard about this church over here? Have you heard of all that they're dealing with? Huh. But they're not talking about what or who. They're not talking about Christ in the church. They're not talking about the gospel. Which is why as uncomfortable as dealing with conflict may be, it has to be dealt with head on. It cannot wait. Nor can we who are being accused of, well, in this case, the apostles being accused of neglect, we can't get defensive. They can't get defensive. Even if we have every right to be defensive, we cannot be defensive. As that's not going to solve the situation or help the situation at all, is it? It may make us feel better in the moment. You know those moments when you feel defensive and you're like, whether it's with a spouse, a coworker, anybody else, you're like, but I told you, <laughs> I feel better now. Did it help anything? It didn't help anything at all. It only made the situation worse. Because whether you're right or wrong, those feelings of neglect or whatever is how the person who's levying the complaint feels. That's how they actually feel. They feel neglected. They feel marginalized. They feel unheard. And that's their reality, whether right or wrong. So just to dismiss them outright is not going to solve anything or help anything. Again, it's only going to make it worse. So it's best to do what? It's best to humbly and compassionately and directly address the situation. And yes, every situation and every response will look a bit different depending on what it is. We in leadership positions, whether it's in the church or in your workplace or in your home or wherever, we will all receive at some point in time valid complaints that genuinely need to be addressed. And we're going to get those complaints that can leave us inside being like, seriously? Like, you're killing me with this. Like, really? Like, I don't understand. But either way, we must listen 
we must love and respond in a timely and appropriate way. And that's what the apostles do here. As number two, the apostles summoned the church together. But Jeremy, the text says that the the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. It doesn't say church. Well, that's true. That's not what it says. However, the word disciples is synonymous with referring to the followers of Jesus, all followers of Jesus, not not just the 12, which means in summoning the full number of disciples, the apostles were summoning the entire church to come together, every Christian being a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so here we're talking of a church, again, of over 5,000 people and growing at this point all coming together at one time, likely in Solomon's portico, to be presented with a timely response to the complaints that they have received. Which tells us, one, the apostles clearly believed that the complaint they received was valid enough to warrant a a response, to bring the entire church together in order to respond. It's not something that's going to be dealt with privately, but very publicly. And two, we see they invite the church to actually help them solve the problem. But in considering this, here's where it's important to remember the context. And that's important in anything, any time of studying scripture, context is key. But remember, this complaint is coming from one segment of the church. No idea how big the segment is. It's likely large. It's a significant size of people. But it's not coming from the church as a whole, but one portion of the church, which means what? It means there are likely others in the church who are like, I don't see the big deal. I'm satisfied with my portion of cake. Like, I I I don't understand the problem here. I don't understand the complaint. Why are these Hellenists complaining? Why are they starting to just just plant seeds of division? I don't get it. At least that could happen, couldn't it? One person or family or group feels neglected or marginalized. And another person or family or group is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't see it. I don't see the problem. Of course this could happen. We see it all the time about almost every aspect of our culture is carried out in this in some way, at every age, which is what? It's the seeds of division. True within the church as well as in society, which again is why the apostles have brought the entire church together to address the situation in a very timely manner. What do we see as they do? The number three, the apostles remain committed to preaching the word of God which is certainly a good thing, right? Even then, nobody's going to likely within the church argue with this. That's, That's a good thing. I'm sure the church wanted the apostles to remain committed to teaching the word. But what's the underlying expectation from the Hellenists with their complaint? That the apostles also handle the daily distribution better to make sure it is equitable for all. So, yes, we want you to continue to preach and teach, but we want you to do this as well. And what do you think the initial, like, temptation experienced by the apostles is? Put yourself in their shoes. What would be your temptation in this moment? The complaint is levied. You hear this complaint. People in 
the church or your particular organization or, or, or group are, are feeling neglected, how are you tempted to respond? Well, let me see what I can do to, to make sure we're able to meet this need, right? That's how we're, we're tempted to respond. If we care, that's what we want. Because, like, I'm sure that they genuinely want the situation handled. We want the situation handled. Like, you would genuinely want to make sure no one is neglected, right? That's in fe- your feeling inside. Like, I don't want anybody feeling that, that way. You want to make sure everyone continues to abound in unity. And you want to make sure it's done right so there are no more complaints. Like, I want to get this done right this time because I don't want to have to deal with any more complaints later. So you're like, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. We'll make sure it's done. But then what's going through your mind at the exact same time? How am I going to get all this done? Like, how am I going to do all this? And there's what? There's only so much time in the day, right? And if you've got people upset with this thing over here that's visible, like a feeding ministry, and they're feeling neglected and they're getting upset by that, something's got to give. What could happen for the apostles in order to make that something happen? Make that daily distribution go better? Less time given to preparation for preaching and prayer, which is how God has designed for his church to grow, through the preaching of the word. Not through feeding ministry, but the preaching of the word. Of preaching Christ crucified, risen from the dead. Forgiveness of sin found nowhere else but in Christ alone. Repent and believe in Jesus. Same message that we continue to preach and proclaim today. But now hear me on this. Mercy ministries certainly serve an important place in the life of the church. Important to care for those who are in need. Important to care for widows and and orphans and, and other forms of mercy ministries. We've seen this emphasized through Acts thus far. So not not at all saying that this is not important or a vital part of the church, it is. But for a church to remain healthy and continue to grow in a healthy way that God has designed, it cannot under any circumstance neglect the preaching and teaching of God's word. I remember Mark Dever, the the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., telling Mike McKinley, the pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church, not too far from here, over in Sterling. Mike is who preached for us earlier this summer, some of you may remember. When, when Mike took that position initially, with all the other responsibilities that he was going to have as a pastor, of everything that was going to buy for his time, his number one responsibility that Mark charged Mike with was to preach good sermons even told him, with all the pressures that are going to mount upon you, preach good sermons. Everything else can fail, but preach good sermons. Now, that wasn't to say that Mark wanted everything else to fail. He didn't. There are other responsibilities that a pastor has beyond preaching. But his point was, and still is, 
if you neglect the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word, everything else will fail anyway. The church will not grow as God intended without the faithful and preaching and teaching of God's word. So preach good sermons. There are only so many hours in a day to devote your time to what matters most and go from there. And remember, you can't do it all. Not intended to. And a healthy church wants what? A healthy church wants good sermons. A healthy church wants good teaching. A healthy church craves good Bible teaching. Can't get enough of it. Every time it's offered, they want it. A healthy church is like, give us more Bible. (laughs) We cannot get enough. And they want their pastors devoted to studying and preaching and teaching God's word. The church in Jerusalem was feasting on the teaching of the apostles. They could not get enough of it. But now what do they also want? Better care for the widows. And who can argue with that, right? You can't argue with that. You shouldn't argue with that. It's biblical. Can't be neglecting orphans and widows. Can't be turning our back on, on the needy among us within the church. Which means what? You've got two important things that need attention. And those that levy in the complaint at least want the apostles to provide both of them. Good preaching and better care for the widows. And they're like, get it done. And the obvious question is, how? How do they do this? I remember in in seminary, one of my professors telling us how he had asked 12 of his deacons of the church that he had pastored to list off the the minimum amount of time that he should give to to various pastoral tasks each week. And and they could even add others if they deemed them necessary beyond the list that he had given them. So he had them write down the minimum number of of hours, the minimum amount of time for, for things like sermon prep. How much time should he spend a week in sermon prep? Put that down, minimum amount of time. And then how much minimum amount of time for prayer and counseling and administration and meetings and hospital visits and so on and so forth. And then he went through on each of the deacons list and he tallied up the minimum hours for for just these 12 deacons to see what it would take to meet their collective expectations. So whoever had the lowest amount for preaching and whoever had the lowest amount for counseling, whoever had the lowest amount for all these, and then he added them all together. And remember, this is not the entire church. This is 12 here deacons. And you know what the total hours came to? Again, minimally speaking, to meet all their collective expectations, 114 hours per week. So to meet the collective expectation of just 12 deacons, he would have to work more than 16 hours a day, seven days a week. You want a day off? Okay, you can have a day off, but you're going to have to work 19 hours a day for six days a week. We all laughed. And thankfully, he said his deacons laughed as well when they realized uh, how much expectation they had. But the reality is true. Whether it's in the church or in life, people are going to have expectations for us. 
us being all of us, not just pastors, but every aspect of our life that we are in, they're going to have expectations for us that we cannot meet. It's impossible to meet. doesn't even matter how hard we try. We cannot do it. And if we do try to meet every single person's expectation, to say, okay, i got to meet every expectation of every single person within the church or in my life, we're either going to burn ourselves out completely or we're going to die at a very early age. It's just not possible. Church, none of us in this room are omnipotent. None of us in this room are omnipresent. None of us in this room are omniscient. We are not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. We are none of these things. But you know who is? God is. And none of us are God. God alone is God. So what are we to do? Well, let's consider how the apostles respond. As we see, they respond with great wisdom. But not, not only knowing by not only their limitations, but, but knowing what's best for the church. As they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Which, let's face it, that kind of sounds a little snooty, doesn't it not? Like, kind of sounds like we're too good to wait tables. But that's not the case at all. The church needs a fair and equitable daily distribution of the food. But they need to feast on the word of God even more. But see, what the apostles in their spirit-given wisdom recognize is that this doesn't have to be an either-or. This can be a both-and. But to get the both-and, the apostles have to come to the point where they realize we can't do it all. They have to know when to say no. They have to know when to delegate. Which are lessons and things that every single one of us need to learn. Some of you in this room, you need to learn in a healthy way of how to say no. There's nothing wrong with that. You cannot do it all. And you're not expected to. Now there's others who need to do more. So you can balance out there. But these are lessons we all need to learn. But continue with observation number four. The apostles call on the church to choose seven men. The apostles telling them to, to pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So those who are willing, well thought of by others as men of good integrity, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So picture this. 5,000 plus people called upon to choose seven men to meet these qualifications. And we're not told how they go about doing this. But I'm just thinking of all the ways that this could go badly. Like 5,000 people to come up with seven? So many ways that this could go wrong within a church. There's only one way it can go right. By the work of the Holy Spirit. Only by the church truly committing such a decision to prayer. Only by the church approaching such a decision with humility and an overall desire to do what's best for the church, not just themselves. And thus doing what's best for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they knew their names or not. This is putting one's personal motives aside for the betterment of the whole. 
which isn't always an easy thing to do, is it? It can be a difficult thing to do. So the plan is that the apostles will continue to pray and they preach. And these seven men will be delegated with the responsibility to care for the daily distribution for the widows. This allowing both the preaching ministry of the church and the mercy ministries of the church or service ministries of the church to be accomplished with excellence without burning anybody out. And how does the church respond? They're pleased. In fact, we're told what they said pleased the whole gathering. There's a unanimous vote. So both Hellenists and Hebrews are pleased. Now, likely not what they had in mind with their desired solution at the beginning, is it? But are like, you know, this might just work. And what does the church do? The church chooses seven qualified men, number five. And their names are listed out for us to see. Stephen, we're going to learn more about in the coming weeks. Philip, we'll we'll see more again as, as well. But Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Arminius and Nicholas, we, we, we know next to nothing else about other than a couple of things. One of those things being that each of these men were Greek. They all have Greek names, which means they're all Hellenists. Not Hebrew, Aramaic, they're, they're Hellenists. Meaning the church as a, as a whole comprised of both Hebrews and, and Hellenists chose in unity seven Hellenists to to handle the issue. And all were pleased. Talk about humility. And then the second thing is we're told that Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch, meaning he wasn't an ethnic Jew. He was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism either sometime either at Pentecost or after Pentecost and now had come to faith in Christ since Pentecost which is revealing or hinting at what's to come. It's hinting at that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is both for Jews and for Gentiles. But seven men are are chosen, tasks are delegated out, church is unified, and number six, the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. This signifying what? Well, it signifies the apostles commissioning these men to do the task they have been chosen to do. Now, this isn't the same thing here as what we may be accustomed to of ordination. Now, because this isn't the same thing as that, because while what we have here in chapter 6 certainly uh, paves the way for a future, future deacon ministry within the church, this doesn't appear to be the official start of uh, the official deacon office it, itself. If it were, I believe Luke, the human author of this book, would have told us that that is the case. He would have used that title. He doesn't. Now, with that, are these men acting as servants in their work? Yes, absolutely. And isn't that what deacons are to do, is be servants? Yes. So isn't there some correlation here, Jeremy, between the two? Absolutely. But what we have here is more of a committee or more of a team that is assigned with a specific task than it is a, 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 a very formal deacon ministry. But it's certainly not something to split hairs over. There's room for disagreement on this because the office of deacon helps serve a, a very similar function, allows for acts of mercy and service within the church to be covered and covered well, 
while allowing pastors the, the time needed to devote to prayer and preaching the word and teaching. And what you have as a result of these, these complementary working together is a healthy, healthy and balanced church working in unity together. Allowing the church then what? The ability to continue to grow as their needs are properly met. Which brings us to point or observation number seven. The church continues to grow. Look with me at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So even the priests are coming to faith in Christ through the preaching of the word. No gimmicks, no tricks, no goldfish. Just the body working together, each part, each person using his or her gifts for the betterment of the whole and to accomplish the mission at hand. And the unified church continued to grow. But again, what happens? What, if, what happens if, if the apostles try to do all of this themselves? They're like, we've got this. Can't trust anyone else to do it like we can, so we've got it, we'll do it. What happens? They burn out. Can't keep up a pace like that. And that's not healthy for them, nor is it healthy for the church. Because not only would they burn out, they'd be depriving the church of functioning in this act of, of service. In this act of, of meeting one another's needs. See, not everyone in the, in the church was or is qualified to preach and teach or has the gifting to do so. That's okay. But everyone was or should be qualified to meet the criteria that these seven men met. I mean, let's face it, these qualifications are not a high bar. These qualifications every Christian should be meeting or desiring to meet. And we should all be a people of good integrity, that should be our aim in life, right? To be a people of good integrity. And every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. So then the only question is simply, is like, is there evidence of the Spirit's work in my life or not? And then the wisdom comes from, from whom? From the Spirit. So it's not that these are the only seven men to meet this criteria. But the point is, it's something the church body could do to allow the apostles even more time for preaching and prayer, which is also an act of service of the church. See, a healthy, growing church is a balanced church. As 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 tell us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And church, that's the aim. That's the aim. That in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. But this can only happen when the church is working collectively towards the same goal, each using various gifts that he or she has received for the betterment of the body and continually striving to maintain unity that we have in Christ.
Christ. So much more that we could discuss from this. But considering where we're at as a church, and I believe we are in a very good place in so many ways. But looking ahead to where we're going and desiring to go in the days ahead and all that will and could potentially come our way in the days ahead, I believe this is a very important and providential lesson for the Lord to give to us today. I know I am personally thankful for it this week. A needed reminder indeed. Let's pray. Lord, I continue to marvel that as we move through books of the Bible, the texts that we think are going to teach us one thing, or we're going to move through quicker and be less impactful for whatever reason in our foolish minds that cause us to think that, can cause us to just stop and ponder and worship, repent, and give you praise. Lord, you do have this whole thing rigged. Like, you know exactly how the church is to function because you built her and are building her. And forgive us for ever trying to doubt your ways or go on our own path. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gift that is to our lives individually. And Lord, I pray that we will be a people who are faithful to continue to proclaim this gospel, both in word and in deed, until Christ returns. Help us as a church to continue to grow in unity. May we function well as you continue to provide the growth. And may you receive all glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.